0: Captive right That in lonely
1: exile. You're listening to an Ancient Future podcast Brought to you by St. Benedict's Table A congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada Located in Winnipeg, Manitoba I'm your host, Jamie Howison This podcast features a talk that I gave On Saturday, November 19th At St. John's College to a little group of people who'd gathered for breakfast and to explore together some of the themes of Advent and Christmas. This is familiar territory for me and some of my favorite. I should also just add that the music you were listening to as we began is by Steve Bell. His setting of a traditional hymn, of course, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, from his Keening for the Dawn album, a collection of songs for Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. Thanks to Steve for giving us permission to use his songs, and there are two more included in this podcast. So, thank you for the invitation to do this with you. I'm fairly passionate about Advent. I'm a fan of Christmas, but I actually love the Advent season, and appreciate Christmas, if that makes any sense. I grew up in a family that didn't have a liturgical church identity. We were for a time in a little Presbyterian church out in the west end of the city, and then through most of my adolescence were in a, in a non-denominational evangelical church. These were not communities that paid a whole lot of attention to things like the liturgical year. But I did love Christmas. And, you know, I think mean, every kid loves Christmas. But there was a, a number of things that really resonated for me. One of them was we didn't start it too early. You know, the kids would be pushing to have the Christmas tree up the first week of December. But it was always delayed. And it was in the delay there was the buildup of anticipation. I also have vivid memories of uh, my parents' Christmas crash, sitting out in the front hallway, which in that world was not particularly common. But for whatever reason, my family and my grandparents had crashes in their homes. And so it was all part of the build-up and the anticipation. But it was Christmas Day was the highlight. Absolutely. I mean, Christmas Eve, we went to church. That was good. And then came home and hung up our stockings and put out cookies for Santa. That whole thing. It it was just this glorious day. And then I remember going to sleep on Christmas night thinking it's a whole year till the next one. When I was in university, I started to attend All Saints Church. And had my first introduction to a more robust sense of the flow of seasons. And I remember being there, the first Advent I was there, and out came this Advent wreath and the lighting of the candle, and it just sort of spoke to that part of me that was excited about preparation. And so I just came to love the season of Advent as the season of preparation, but I think my understanding of it was thin, because I saw it really as a build-up to Christmas, and then it began to deepen. We'll get there. But what I'm going to do is uh, play you, I'm going to open and close with some music. I'm going to play you a song by Steve Bell called Oracles from an album called Keening for the Dawn, which is original music he wrote for Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. This is one of the Advent songs, and it is, I've got lyrics for you. It, the oracles are the, the writings in the book of the prophet Isaiah that anticipate new future, new possibility. And I think that the thing that Steve does with this song is is kind of offers a reminder that the season of Advent is not simply about readiness for Christmas, but is also a a readiness for a much grander vision of uh, uh, completion and culmination for us as humanity.
0: Justice will reign on earth at last. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. No beast destroyed, no serpent strike the child's hand. And God Himself will choose the sign. A frightened woman in her time. son and name him well
1: Given that song is an emphasis on some of the original force of Advent, which is meant to anticipate the completion, the culmination, the fullness of all things in time and history, at the end of time and history, in a sense. This is the season, I think, because of those themes, is one of the church's great countercultural opportunities. But we can kind of lose the compass. So, there was a story in the Anglican Journal just a few years ago and the the uh, the text went as follows it says for Christians around the world advent is a period of expectant and joyful waiting for the birth of Jesus Christ the wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace for the birth so for Christmas. Advent then becomes reduced to a time that's simply waiting for Christmas. In uh, November 2017, an article in the Telegraph, the English press, the headline was, Advent has been taken over by consumerism, clergy warn, as sales of luxury calendars soar. And then it went on to talk about Many of these calendars are explicitly for adults containing perfume or alcohol. The offering from Joe Malone costs 300 pounds, so this is a few years ago, but an old and rare whiskey advent calendar from Master of Malt retails for 999 pounds and 95 pence. With the very old and rare version of that calendar of whiskeys, Costing 9,999 pounds and ninety-five pence. It's kind of a bit of madness. So Ian Paul of the Archbishop's Council in the UK described the new breed of luxury calendars as deeply ironic. He said, Christians use Advent as a time to remember two things. The first is Jesus' own coming to us in poverty from the riches of his glory at the Father's right hand. The second is God's promised future of coming in judgment, when he will hold all people to account for their greed and selfishness. So it is doubly ironic that people are using Advent to celebrate greed and wealth. The adaption of religious symbols for such secular ends appears to demonstrate the absolute power of consumerism. It appears that there is no limit to the ideas that can be trampled on and colonized. Well, I mean, that's a a very potent statement made by uh, the Archbishop's Council and a warning that we do live in a world that would be quite happy to colonize almost anything at all. Whereas, in the original emphasis of this season... There was four themes that were meant to be touched on over the course of Advent. The modern church has tended to think of the four themes as being hope, peace, joy, and love. Those are all very nice. Hope, peace, joy, and love. It's really hard to know where those four came from, however. When you try to do any digging into the history of the development of those four themes as being Advent themes, you come up with almost nothing. The traditional four things for Advent, the four last things, were death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Uh, Totally different emphasis. But there's a connection, actually, in those four themes, which are calling for fairly deep contemplation on our mortality and fragility. There's a connection to St. Benedict, who in his rule as to the monastic communities said, keep death daily before your eyes. That wasn't meant to be a depressing, heavy hearted thing, but rather an embrace and an acknowledgement of our fragility. Keep death daily before your eyes, not out of fear, but out of that reality. So, I think we have made a huge shift from that older sensibility to this one that wants to kind of tidy up and then slide into Advent as just the great commercial shopping season, the Christmas shopping season. So let me track us back a little bit. Through what the, how the prayer book understood Advent, how the Book of Alternative Services understands Advent, and go through a a little bit of additional material, and then we'll just kind of nail down some of the symbols and what they all mean. In the Book of Common Prayer, the four Sundays of Advent, the Gospel readings were, first, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and the cleansing of the temple. Advent? Two, an apocalyptic Gospel reading from the Book of uh, the Gospels according to St. Luke, where a very adult Jesus is speaking in very dire terms, right? Three, John the Baptist, questioning from prison by his disciples, asking, so are you, Jesus, the one I've been preaching about or not? Four, John the Baptist in the wilderness, anticipating the arrival of a very adult Jesus. And then on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve at midnight, The gospel to be read was the prologue to John's gospel. In the beginning was the word. Now, notice something in there. If you are accustomed to Advent and Christmas in um, the contemporary Book of Alternative Services lectionary, there's a bunch of stuff missing. In the contemporary lectionary, spread over three years, but more or less the same shape in each of the three years, the first week Jesus speaking in very dire terms of the coming crisis. Second, you move to the figure of John the Baptist. So in the case of this year, we have on Advent 2, John's call to repentance. Repent, repent, the time is coming. The one is coming who I'm not even fit to untie the thong of his sandal. And then the third Sunday of Advent, it's... um, John in prison, sending his disciples to say, So, Jesus, are you it? So there's some similarities to the old lectionary. But in this case, we always have an annunciation story. Always. In this year, year A, Matthew's version, it's the annunciation to poor old Joseph, who kind of is, oh, geez, she's pregnant and wasn't me, but I'll put her away quietly, you know. And then the angel comes and says, guess what, Joe? <laughs> and and you've got to stick with this woman. Like, it's a wild story, but it's a good story. And then in the year B and year C, it's the angel coming to Mary. And in all three years, you read or proclaim the Magnificat, whether in place of the psalm or as part of the gospel. So you've got those pictures of of Mary and Joseph and the, the Magnificat very much in view. And then on Christmas Eve, you do have the option of reading the prologue to John's Gospel, but it really pushes you towards the Luke story, the famous Bethlehem story, right? With the same lessons happening on Christmas Day. So in our contemporary lectionary, The Annunciation and Nativity story are very much in view. And I say it's particularly significant that both the Annunciation and Magnificat are used with that sort of robust fullness. Now, Mary did not figure very large in the Churches of my childhood. I mean, I know for Helen, who grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, Mary's a pretty <coughs> central figure. She may have been had a, had a, a prominent role in, in your upbringing as well. In mine, we didn't think about Mary very much. You know, we had our Christmas pageant at church, Sunday school pageant at church, and one of the girls got to be Mary. And we had our manger scene at home, but the fact, very little was made of the fact that Mary has a bit of a role all the way through the Gospels. And in fact, in the creeds, there's only two humans aside from Jesus who are named, Mary and Pilate, which is fascinating. Mary is, is the one who symbolically stands with Jesus, even at the points where she's not sure who he is and what's going on. And Pilate is the one who capitulates to the forces of government and empire to see him done. So Mary's significant, but I never saw her. Wasn't part of my childhood, really. Lovely poem by Madeleine L'Engle called After Annunciation. Four whole lines. This is the irrational season When love blooms bright and wild Had Mary been filled with reason There'd have been no room for the child, right? This is the irrational season when love blooms bright and wild. Had Mary been filled with reason, there'd been no room for the child. So Langle sees a very human face to Mary, and a sort of this—the wildness of letting reason go for the sake of the new, a different version that considers, I think, the fearful cost of it by Father Killian McDonald. Killian is a monk of St. John's Abbey in Collegeville, Minnesota. Killian is now 101. He stopped publishing poetry in his mid-90s. He started in his early 80s. Pretty interesting story. But this is called In the Kitchen by Killian. Giotto has it wrong. I was not kneeling on my satin cushion quietly at prayer. Head slightly bent, painters always skew the scene as though my life were wrapped in silks, in temple smells. Actually, I had just come back from the well. Placing the pitcher on the table, I bumped against the edge, spilling water on the floor. As I bent to wipe it with a rag, there was a light against the kitchen wall. As though someone had opened the door to the sun, rag in hand, hair across my face, I turned to see who was entering, unannounced, uninvited. All I saw was light, white against the timbers. I hear a voice. Greetings were given. The Lord was with me. I was elected. I will conceive the son of God by the Holy Spirit. My son will reign forever. I stood afraid. Someone closed the door. I dropped the rag. I love the way Killian does this with so many of the stories. He gets underneath the surface level to things like anxiety and fear and discomfort and He's just unafraid of the fullness of the stories. I cannot commend him highly enough. So that kind of his background, his sense of, oh, the church has shifted from some of the older, more judgment-focused themes towards preparation, but not just preparation for Christmas, preparation for the fullness of time, with a couple of poetic images popping in your imaginations. Let me talk about first the symbols of Advent, and then the symbols of Christmas, and then we can chatter. Advent begins to develop in the mid-4th century. So, within 50 years of the Emperor Constantine declaring Christianity legal, because we'd been illegal prior to that in the empire, within 50 years of Constantine's declaration, Advent begins to surface. In the historical records. By the 13th century in the Western Church, it had become a four-week period. There was, always, there was always a sense of this time before Christmas, but it had become this defined four-week period with that penitential Lenten sort of tone as the prayer book carries. We have now shifted the color and the emphasis. It used to be purple in the 80s, when I was a student at Trinity College Toronto, we were introduced to this blue, and I wasn't sure if that was right or not. You know, I was very earnest. But towards blue, because the blue represents a more reflective sort of tone, as opposed to the penitence of Lent. And then some of you will be familiar with, uh, with the Advent procession. Big deal at All Saints every year. They do this great big Advent procession, hour and a half plus, lots of glorious music, the occasional hymns so the congregation can then participate, readings on these themes all the way through. And everybody, I'm sure, who goes to All Saints who doesn't know better thinks, "Oh, this is you know, this has been going on forever. This is an ancient ceremony." Nope. The first one took place in 1934. At King's College, Cambridge, it was it was basically cut out of uh, a new cloth, but looked like it had been going on for centuries. But it's a good expression of the season, and people love the Advent procession. All good. The Advent wreath, and you know the the wreath, usually with the four candles for either four blue or three purple, one pink. The earliest forms of this. Advent wreath surface in Germany in the 16th century, but it was popularized and became really common by a Lutheran pastor in the 1830s in Germany, who used this wreath in the context of his work with a, in, in a home for orphan children. This very visible, tangible sign, and from everything I read about him, he was apparently lovely, good man who's passionate about bringing light and uh, and good things into the orphanage, which would have been a pretty dire place in the 1830s in Germany, anywhere in the 1830s. In that context, it was a wheel-shaped chandelier hung from the ceiling, wrapped in pine boughs with candles that were added, one for each day. But in common use, it went from being one a day to one a week, to our now... Very familiar for. Very popular in German homes. And then it began to spread into the churches. But it actually was in the homes before it was in the churches. The Advent wreath arrived in North America in the 1930s. Again, we think of this as being this very ancient, traditional thing. Not so much. 1830s due to German immigration. So there's a symbol that we all would recognize and think very, very old. But in our parts of the world, it's less than 100 years old. The Jesse tree. Jesse tree is one of the symbols for Advent. The depiction of the ancestry of Jesus, going back to Jesse, right? The, the, uh, the father of King David. And uh, the Jesse tree is shown in medieval stained glass in the windows with the figures representing all of the descendants, ultimately, of Jesus. The 20th century saw that medieval thing beginning to be popularized as an Advent symbol. And so you would bring in a branch into the church, or a big enough branch that it looks like a, a dead tree, plant it in a bucket of sand, and then get the kids to add these symbols. And the modern tree often doesn't even show Jesse, or the ancestors of Jesus, but rather the symbols of the stories leading up to the Christmas story, and very much aimed at children. So the symbols are very simple. Be a symbol of a burning bush for Moses, a symbol of a ram for Isaac. But these sort of key stories that anticipate the Jesus story that are symbolized and hung on the tree, it was far more common. I don't know if, like, Do you guys do that at St. Thomas, or no? I don't know. Did anybody here grow up with a Jesse tree in church? Well, it was part of Sunday school teaching. Yeah. When I was in the Catholic church, that grade made a Jesse tree. Yeah. 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 So it's less common, I think, than it used to be. Advent calendars. Now, Advent calendars also seem to come from Germany. Germany is a big home for this stuff. (laughs) They were a household tradition. With homemade calendars in evidence by the 1850s, and by 1914, so just before the First World War, or on the just on the eve of the First World War, Germany had been exporting Advent calendars. And while it was interrupted by the war and then by the Second World War, German Advent calendars are still really common. If you go to a church goods store, not not those, not the ones in Safeway with with, you know, Santa Claus and little doors for substandard chocolate. But the really traditional old-fashioned ones with the little doors tend to come still from Germany. Originally, it was just pictures behind those doors. But all manner of things have been added since. So you can get your whiskey calendar or whatever. But the original ones were just the little doors. And then the crash. There's evidence... For a, a, a crash, so a stable with figures, going back to the fourth century. So this is one of the ancient ones, most often in churches, not in homes. It was Saint Francis of Assisi popularized the crash on Christmas Eve, twelve twenty-three, when he arranged a presentation of the nativity story, complete with. Adult parents, a baby that they borrowed from somebody, ox, donkeys, shepherds, the works. They did this as a sort of a, a show in a sense, a bit of theater that you could go and see. And the aim being the instruction of people who were illiterate and an emphasis on the humanness of this family, so it wasn't the grand regal Mary that you often see in those, the paintings of the era. She looks like just terribly royal and regal and it's purple and all. No, no, this would have been a, a plain ordinary woman in a sort of a peasant setting. And so Francis wanted to reclaim that picture. Soon the practice was spreading throughout medieval Europe. Uh, generally using statues instead of people, and often in much smaller sizes than life-size. But churches in medieval Europe used this as a way to sort of remind people of the story, teach the story. In the early modern period, sculpted cribs were uh, often exported from Italy, and set up began to be set up in homes as well in, as in churches. So my very Protestant evangelical family always had a crash. As did my great my grandparents. And in talking to my mom, my preacher, great-grandfather before them, who was in that non-denominational evangelical Bible teaching world, always had a crash. So there's some of the, the symbols, some of them very old, some of them surprisingly recent in Advent, Christmas. The celebration of the birth of Christ seems not to have been common until the late 4th century. In the first 300 plus years, while we were still a, an illegal movement, there wasn't a big celebration around Jesus' birth the more important story to be told were his teachings and crucifixion. The earliest mention of a December 25th date comes from 336 in Rome. And it seems that that date was chosen intentionally to counteract uh, a Roman feast of the time, the birth of the unconquerable sun, S-U-N. So you have this, this Roman feast that's celebrating the the birth of the sun, Christians counteract by saying, well, let's have one to celebrate the birth of the sun, S-O-N. In Northern Europe, the same thing happened. The development of Christmas was a direct response to the pagan and Druidic solstice festivals. So if at the darkest day of the year, the, 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 the Druidic religions of the day had great feasts at that time of the year, to summon the return of the S-U-N sun. And in some some regards, the Christians, as they spread, sort of said, hey, great idea, great feast, but let's recognize the real roots of light and life in the world. And so Christmas then becomes tied to that midwinter festival time. It was, Christmas was outlawed. In many Calvinist cities and countries after the Reformation, John Calvin was not a big fan of Christmas, and his followers, even less so. The Calvinists acquired power in 1561 in Scotland, so in the Presbyterian Church in Scotland. Their book of discipline declared that feast days like Christmas and Epiphany were papist inventions that were to be abolished. So, there they are, 1561, Scotland. Uh, Christmas should be abolished. It's illegal. It's, it's, it's all an invention. Merchants were fined for selling Christmas goods, And while James I legally reintroduced uh, Christmas in 1618. So, James I of the King James Bible made it, again, legal for Christmas to happen in Scotland. It was again completely banned in the Commonwealth and uh, out of the question by the 1630s. And it really only returned to Scotland through the two world wars, because the Scots soldiers were exposed to Christmas practices and they brought them home. But for the most part in Scotland, Hogmanay, New Year's Day, is way more important than Christmas to this day. So that's interesting, you know, the backlash in some parts of the world by the Calvinists against Christmas and the push forward. Like there's been this back and forth swinging between it being a really good thing, to being an evil thing, to being overblown and overcommercialized, to being simple. It's in this massive cycle of flux, and we don't have to surrender to the demand to buy more, 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 more. Wreaths. And greens. Wreaths go back to ancient Greece, often as a symbol of victory. Christmas wreaths made from greens symbolize life life in the darkest time of the year, the eternity of Christ in the midst of the darkness, as did did green boughs. So you put these things out. Pre-Christians put them out as a symbol of, of, you know, life in, in in darkness. Christians put them out and said yes, and we know we believe we know who the source of that life is. So that it was taking over uh, pre-Christian symbols and and claiming them anew is essentially what happened. So those same symbols were present in pre-Christian solstice festivals in Northern <clears throat> Europe. We just adapted holly. Merged as a symbol in medieval Europe, particularly in some more northern areas where holly could grow, even if it snowed. The leaves remain green, the berries red, even in cold conditions. So it was a perfect thing for decorating homes. You could you know, bring it in from your hedge and place it up on the window ledges and so on. A reminder of the incarnation, again, green, life in the midst of, of, of dark and snow. But it also became remembered as a sign of the passion, the crown of thorns with drops of blood. It's like having those two together. This is an incarnation symbol. This is a, this is a passion symbol. It's a little bit like having Christmas Day. Yeah, this is the Feast of the Nativity. In the traditional calendars, anybody know what the next day is? 26th, not Boxing Day. St. <laughs> Stephen's Day, the Feast of Stephen. And St. Stephen is the first Christian martyr. So in the 12 days of Christmas, you begin with the great feast of, of the birth, the incarnation. And the next day, you, you are observe the death of the first Christian martyr. And actually, in the old calendar, on the 28th, it was the Feast of the Holy Innocents, the children killed by King Herod. So there was built into the, even this feasting time of the 12 days of Christmas, there was built in this insistence that we not forget that there are bleak pieces to this story. So holly, in a sense, symbolizes that. The green, but the pricks, and the red as a symbol of the blood. The tree. Now, legend from the 720s has St. Boniface, the the, the guy, not the neighborhood of Winnipeg, (laughs) has Symbonifus felling the oak of Thor in Germany. So the tree that represented the god Thor, he fells that tree and then points to a young fir tree as a new symbol. This is our tree now. It's evergreen, even in the midst of the dark winter. Whether Simonifus ever did that or not, it's a kind of a good story. 1605, in Germany, is the first account of an evergreen tree being decorated with paper roses, for Mary, apples, remembering Eden, wafers, for communion, and sugar lumps, for the sweetness of Christ. By 1660, again in Germany, there's early indications of candles being placed on the tree branches along with these symbols, which always seemed to me a very risky thing to do. Trees were Christmas trees were extremely popular, especially in Protestant Germany. And then it spread to England in the 18th century with Hanoverian kings and through uh, Queen Victoria's husband, Albert, who was German. And he really was responsible for popularizing the Christmas tree in England. That's not that long ago again. Like, it's the 1880s. And in the big picture, what's 140 years, right? Gifts. Pre-Christian Roman midwinter festivals included gift giving. In a sermon from the year 400, there are warnings that Christmas gift-giving was making the children greedy and uh, had become less about sealing friendship and more about getting. So, this is 400, some of the same concerns that people might articulate today, right? What is this really all about? Who is this good for? For much of the Middle Ages, gift-giving was reserved for the upper classes and the royalty. But by the 13th century, evidence surfaces of gifts being given to children, often not on Christmas Day but on St. Nicholas Day, so December sixth, and that whole figure of St. Nicholas who morphs into Santa Claus. In the 18th century, the first advertisements surface, print advertisements for gifts for children in the in the papers, and by the 19th century, industrial revolution the attitude to children was beginning to change, and childhood was becoming more and more idealized, and that hastened Christmas gift-giving and the commercialization of Christmas in a big way. the 20th century, the figure of Santa Claus was popularized largely through Coca-Cola ads and Norman Rockwell's paintings for the Saturday Evening Post if you look at older images of Santa Claus, or even think of the night before Christmas, he is not described as a great big man, but rather as a small figure, often pictured as a thin figure, because then he can get down your chimney. And between uh, Norman Rockwell and Coca-Cola, this new image comes of the great big robust Santa Claus. He is a creation, right, of the 20th century. And that imagery was spread by soldiers, particularly through the Second World War because uh, American soldiers would arrive in all of these places throughout, actually throughout both the Pacific, but Europe and North Africa, and at Christmas time would have all this image and these practices that spread and were very, very popular. So again, it's interesting that the war plays a role in the spread of how some of this stuff works. So those are some of the, the sort of the key pieces, uh, key symbols of Advent and Christmas. I would just say quickly, Epiphany, the 12 days of Christmas start on the 25th, run for 12 days, and then January 6th is Epiphany, right after the 12 days. In the Western Church... The, the emphasis is on the, the, the gift of the Magi. So that's the gospel story is, is the visit of the Magi to the young family. And if you actually look at it, they're not in a stable, they're in a house. And uh, so it's, it's a different, different story from what happens in Luke. And the suggestion is that maybe it's because it's sometime later. Whatever the case, it's a good story. And that's the emphasis in the western church the earliest reference to epiphany as a christian feast was in the year 361 so it, it it's early 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 as well when it seems to have marked both christ's birth and his baptism in the latin speaking west we've continued with uh, the they started the the emphasis on the magi we have continued that In the Orthodox East, actually, there's a stronger emphasis on baptism. And there is a practice of doing baptisms using running water on Epiphany. So there's a procession down to the river, and in some places that river is pretty darn frozen. And a blessing of the river is done, and if there's water that can be drawn, it's taken back to the church for baptism in some Orthodox traditions. So a different emphasis. So there, there you go, you get a little bit of... Advent, a little bit of Christmas, a very little bit of epiphany. I want to play another song, and then we can chatter. This is um, called A a Christmas Hymn. It's a poem by Richard Wilbur, very, very well-known American poet. And set as a hymn by, in this edition, David Hurd, who for many years was the organist at General, and music professor at General Theological Seminary in New York. This version is by Steve Bell from his album, The Feast. It begins in the stable. Second verse has you in Palm Sunday. The third verse has us on Good Friday. And the fourth verse goes beyond that and is the true Advent hope for the restoration and fullness of all things in the fullness of time.
0: A stable lamp is lighted Whose glow shall wake the sky The stars will bend their voices And every stone shall cry And every stone shall cry And straw like gold will shine a barn will harbor air A star become a shrine This child today The stars will bend their voices, and every storm shall cry, and every storm shall cry in praises. of